Hello and welcome. This is a podcast of ukraineworld.org. Ukraine World is a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm a chief editor of ukraineworld.org. What is the situation in Donbass? What is the situation around Russia's aggression in eastern Ukraine? What is the situation around Minsk agreements and how can we resolve this conflict? I think this is a topic very disturbing and very uh, important for Ukraine in the past five, six years. And today we'll be talking about uh, a very interesting research paper prepared by Chatham House, a think tank, a famous think tank in London, which is called The Minsk Conundrum, Western Policy and Russia's War in Eastern Ukraine. And I'm happy to have as my guest Duncan Allen, Associate Fellow at Russia and Eurasia Program at the Chatham House in London and author of this paper. Hello, Duncan. Hello, Volodymyr. Thanks so much for joining us. It's indeed very important to analyze the Minsk agreements. You called your paper the Minsk conundrum. Can you explain why? Yes, I can. Very simply, the, the Minsk agreements, the first agreement was signed in September 2014. And the second, perhaps more important agreement was signed in February 2015. These two agreements on paper provide the framework for a peaceful settlement of the war in eastern Ukraine. The difficulty is, however, this is the conundrum which is inherent in these agreements. The difficulty is that these both agreements rest on two irreconcilable interpretations of Ukraine's sovereignty. So on, on the one hand, we have Ukraine's interpretation of the agreements in which Ukraine is restored as a fully sovereign country, able to make its own domestic and foreign policy choices. And then on the other hand, um, we have Russia's interpretation, and Russia sees the agreements essentially as instruments with which to break Ukraine's sovereignty and to compromise the Ukrainian authorities' ability to run their internal and external affairs as they choose. So that is the Minsk conundrum. Do you think we often underline the two values which are very important, sovereignty and territorial integrity? And it's fixed in uh, any documents about the sanctions against Russia, etc., don't you think that Russia, by Minsk agreements, is trying to trade off territorial integrity for sovereignty? Meaning that, okay, we give back the occupied territories to you, but instead you establish a spatial status, whatever, and establish a, a territory uh, which is a kind of a Trojan horse in Ukrainian political body. I think that, that sums up the Russian approach very nicely, Volodymyr. Um, essentially, as you say, what Russia is suggesting is that if you reincorporate the occupied Donbass back into Ukraine in a certain way that gives Russia considerable indirect control over Ukraine's internal affairs, then we will allow these occupied regions to be formally reincorporated into Ukraine. Now, on one level, that might meet some people's definition of respect for Ukraine's territorial integrity. However, it would come at a cost, as you say, of fundamentally compromising Ukraine's sovereignty. Let's also remember, of course, that the Minsk agreements make no mention of Crimea, which was illegally uh, annexed by Russia in March 2014. And the status of Crimea is, is not covered in any way at all by the Minsk agreements. You mentioned that there are basically two parts of the Minsk agreements. One is coming from September 2014 and another from February 2015, the so-called Minsk II. 
Both of them were linked to uh, an acts of Russian aggression on the front line. We remember that September agreements were made after a huge assault near Ilovaisk and February agreement during a huge assault around the Baltseve. Do you think that the Minsk agreements are part of Russian strategy of coercion to peace, which was announced formally uh, even during the aggression against Georgia in 2008, meaning that there are peace agreements but made mostly on Russian terms? I think it's very important indeed to understand the context in which these two agreements were signed. As you correctly say, Volodymyr, the immediate context to both agreements was massive use of military force on Ukrainian soil by Russian armed forces. First of all, most devastatingly at Ilovaisk, as you mentioned, in August 2014, and then Debaltseva in February 2015. It's worth adding that the fighting at Debaltseva was continuing as negotiations were taking place in Minsk for the Minsk II agreement. My view is, first of all, that Russia deliberately intensified its use of military force at the time to increase the pressure directly on the Ukrainian side to force Ukraine into making political concessions in the negotiations. But there was also a second, I think, equally important objective behind Russia's use of military force on these two occasions. And frankly, that was to intimidate Western governments. My view remains that at times Western governments have been too keen to find some sort of peaceful political settlement of the conflict in East Ukraine. And at times, I fear they have been intimidated by Russia's use of military force. Russia is very conscious of this. The Russian leadership, I believe, has taken the view that certain Western countries do not have the stomach for a drawn out confrontation on this issue. And they therefore, at times, have used military force and other forms of coercion against Ukraine and elsewhere in order to intimidate foreign audiences to get what they want. You speak very correctly, I think, and very accurately about the two interpretations of the Minsk agreements, the Ukrainian interpretation and Russian interpretation. And let me summarize. Russians are saying that first there should come the political provisions, meaning Ukraine should establish the special status of these occupied territories in, in Donbass, then hold the election, and only then will get control over Ukrainian-Russian border, and only then there will be... Uh, Russia will stop shooting, it insists. Whereas Ukraine wants first a ceasefire, Russia stops shooting, and then, well, maybe we'll go to political settlement, etc. Do you think that there can be a kind of a middle ground between these two radically different positions? No, I don't. No, I don't. This is where I think in the past some Western policymakers have been mistaken. The problem, again, comes back to these incompatible visions of Ukrainian sovereignty. There were attempts in 2015 and 2016 to find compromise solutions. These were the, the so-called Morel plan and the so-called Steinmeier formula. And these were essentially very well-intentioned attempts at resolving the conflict by trying to find a compromise between the Ukrainian and Russian positions. Now, what we saw happening, in fact, was that this attempt, first of all, simply encouraged Russia to be intransigent. Russia, I think, concluded that if it remained intransigent, the Western countries 
would lean more heavily on Ukraine to make further concessions. So what we saw in fact happen was we saw rising political tension in Ukraine because many Ukrainians, quite understandably, are completely opposed to Russia's vision for their country. They're completely opposed to the terms that Russia is demanding. Meanwhile, Western attempts to gently encourage Ukraine towards meeting some of Russia's demands, for example, on special status and on elections, simply had the effect, as I said earlier, of encouraging Russia to dig in its heels and demand more. So what we saw was, in effect, a real risk of political destabilization in Ukraine and no evidence whatsoever that Russia was going to change its position. Ultimately, as I say, the problem that we face is that there are two incompatible interpretations of these agreements. Either Ukraine is sovereign, which is Ukraine's position, or it's not, which is Russia's position. I don't see how you can find a compromise on this issue. Let me remind to our listeners that we are talking with Duncan Allen, Associate Fellow at Russia and Eurasia Programme at the Chatham House in London. And uh, we are discussing the so-called Minsk conundrum, meaning the difficulties of resolving the Donbass uh, conflict through the Minsk agreements. Duncan, you mentioned Morel plan and Steinmeier formula. And uh, it's curious that both these plans are coming from the participants of the Normandy 4 format. Morel plan comes from French diplomacy. And as I know, it is very much defended until now as a kind of uh, initiative to compromise, to uh, harmonize these two uh, positions of Ukraine and Russia. And Steinmeier formula comes from the uh, German diplomacy. So do you think that these two major powers behind Normandy format, which are seeking the resolution of Donbass format, are basically mistaken? I think it's a mistake to think that the way of resolving the Minsk conundrum is to find a compromise between the Ukrainian and Russian positions. So I don't want to comment more generally about French or German diplomacy, but I do believe that these specific initiatives, the Morel Plan and the Steinmeier Formula, were fundamentally flawed because they tried to identify some sort of midpoint, some sort of optimal midpoint between the Russian and Ukrainian positions, which simply does not exist. It seems to me that Western policymakers in general, not just in France and Germany, but Western policymakers in general really do need to take a long, hard look at the underlying realities underneath the Minsk agreements and conclude that in this particular case, compromise is simply not an option. I should add that that, of course, raises some quite uncomfortable policy implications because it implies, first of all, a long drawn out conflict in eastern Ukraine, which of course is hugely destructive, first and foremost for the people in that particular part of Ukraine. Secondly, it implies a long drawn out confrontation with Russia over this particular issue. And it seems to me that at times both of those ideas have been too troubling and too unnerving for certain Western policymakers to think seriously about and to confront honestly. You say in your paper, in the conclusions, that one of the principles of Western policy should be to make the defense of Ukraine's sovereignty the unambiguous premise of the Western policy. And I quote you, Father, this would mean adhering to Ukraine's interpretation of the Minsk agreements, particularly as regards elections and special status. When we hear the 
I mean, this like French diplomacy side often saying that, look, uh, this will further alienate Russia, we should find uh, compromises with Russia, etc. So there is another school of thinking saying that aligning with Ukraine uh, will destabilize the situation. How would you reply to that? Well, I would make a number of points. First of all, Western governments, I think, virtually without exception, have repeatedly said that they support the defence of Ukraine's sovereignty in this context of this particular conflict. Well, if they are really serious about that, then it seems to me inevitable that they have to be guided by Ukraine's interpretation of the Minsk agreements, because any other interpretation, by definition, um, compromises and undermines Ukraine's sovereignty. So, first of all, there's a question of Western governments living by the words that they use. And that's very important, not just in in the context of providing real um, support to Ukraine to defend itself against Russian aggression. It's also important more widely in terms of the reputation and credibility of Western governments. Countries' authority can sometimes be badly undermined if it's perceived that they say one thing but do something else. So consistency and making sure that Western policy is fully aligned with what Western governments are saying is very, very important. The second objection I would have is that, as we've seen, when we think back to the experiences of the Morel Plan and the Steinmeier formula, all the evidence suggests that most Ukrainians do not want that. So are we then seriously contemplating forcing some sort of settlement on Ukraine that Ukrainians don't want to accept? I mean, that simply would be totally unethical. It would, in my opinion, destroy the ethical reputations of Western governments associated with such a proposal, and it simply wouldn't work. Why on earth should Ukrainians agree to have their country's sovereignty fundamentally compromised or seriously damaged in any way? And finally, I don't think that an attempt at compromise, as I indicated earlier, would satisfy Russia. One of the revealing elements of this story over the last, well, slightly more than five years since the Minsk II agreement was signed, is that, as far as I can understand, Russia's position has never changed one bit, one iota. So um, I fear, again, that if attempts are made to find some sort of negotiated compromise, however well-intentioned, the inadvertent consequences could be, first of all, alienation and possibly political instability in Ukraine, and secondly, simply encouraging Russia to believe that ultimately it can face down the Western powers, face down Ukraine, and get what it wants. So I just underline this. There's a warning in this paper to to Western policymakers. Do not be tempted to try to find, again, some sort of midpoint between the Ukrainian and Russian positions. It doesn't exist. I think you're absolutely right. Describing the Russian strategy is that it is a strategy of willingness to advance as long the opponent allows you to advance. And uh, I don't know if you agree with me, but I once formulated in a way that it is a fear of not provoking Russia that provokes Russia. But let me let me still be kind of an advocate of the devil and say that. On, on the one hand, you're, you're talking about the Minsk conundrum, but on the other hand, you're warning against sorting out of Minsk, warning against uh, breaking with Minsk agreements. How to find the middle ground in this? How to 
care. You are saying that the West and Ukraine should be very cautious in implementing the Minsk agreements. And very particular issue, Ukraine's interpretation of Minsk, as you rightly said, is, well, basically... Security first, politics second. Zelensky, President Zelensky tried to maybe kind of modify this approach of Poroshenko, but he still stays on it. And we see, for example, on the Normandy format, this discussion that Zelensky wants first control of the border and only then elections. And Putin replies to that, that look at Minsk too. There is a clear sequence of actions proposed by Russians. First of all, that the first should be elections and only then control over the border. So it is written there and how to avoid this trap of implementing Minsk, but at the same time not adhering to this Russian interpretation. My reply, first of all, is that there is a Russian interpretation, but the Ukrainian interpretation, I would argue, is as valid. So, for example, Minsk 2 says very clearly that there must be a complete and lasting ceasefire. There must be the full pullback of heavy weaponry from the contact line. Now, that simply has not happened. Also, there is a clear commitment, I think it's Article 10 of Minsk 2, which says that all foreign troops, mercenaries and equipment must be withdrawn from Ukraine. And there is no precondition attached to that. Now, it seems to me that on each of those three points, Russia has simply not abided by its obligations. One of the problems in Minsk too, of course, is that Russia is actually not even mentioned, despite the fact that the agreement was signed by Russia's ambassador to Kiev at the time. Russia is not actually mentioned. So this omission, if you like, a gaping hole in Minsk too, has enabled Russia to shirk responsibility and maintain the fiction that actually Russia is not even involved in this, in this war, when we know full well that it is. So the obligations that are very clear that on Russia have simply not been fulfilled. The obligation on Russia to withdraw its forces from Ukraine without precondition is very important to my mind, because that almost by definition would imply surrendering control of the Ukraine-Russia international border to the Ukrainian authorities. I would I'd add one more point as well, which is um, the Minsk II agreement also states that any elections must be held in accordance with the standards of the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. Now, that, the standards of the OSCE with regard to election are very strict. They must be free and they must be fair. So it seems to me that Ukraine has a strong case for arguing that all sorts of conditions must be met before um, we can even move to serious implementation of the political sections. The second point I would make is that Russia's interpretation of so-called special status is simply unworkable. I mean, this goes way beyond anything that most Ukrainians will be willing to accept. If we look at, in detail at what Russia has proposed, and when it has put forward detailed proposals to set out what it means by special status, if these demands were implemented, essentially what we would see created in eastern Ukraine would be many independent states controlled from Russia, linked directly to Russia, and only notionally under the control of the central authorities in Kiev. That is simply unacceptable to most Ukrainians, as opinion polls consistently show. That is simply unworkable. So for those two reasons alone, it seems to me that Ukraine has a very strong case for saying that our interpretation is equally as valid, if not more valid, than the Russian interpretation. And from the perspective of Western governments, I would argue 
that it's only the Ukrainian interpretation that is consistent with Western interests in this part of the world and is the only interpretation that is consistent with the principles that Western governments say they support, first and foremost, the sovereignty of Ukraine. In one of your conclusions, you also say about the assumption that the so-called DNR-LNR, the separatist republics supported by Russia, quote, should not be legally reincorporated into Ukraine for the foreseeable future. So do you think the hastiness of Mr. Zelensky, Ukrainian president, to proceed with implementation of Minsk agreements to end the war. Obviously, it's very important for Ukrainians to end the war because the casualties are every day. Do you think that this hastiness is a mistake? I, of course, completely understand the wish of Ukrainians to see the end of this war. What we're faced with at the moment is a truly appalling situation in eastern Ukraine. Of course, Ukrainians want to see an end to this war. At the same time, I think it's very important that we are honest and realistic about the prospects for reintegration of these Russian proxy regimes in occupied Donbass. It seems to me that in the near term, it is simply unrealistic to talk about reintegration at a time when Ukraine is carrying out major internal reforms of its own, at a time when Um, Ukraine, like every other country in the world, is fighting the COVID-19 pandemic. An attempt to integrate these, what are essentially militarized dictatorships, to integrate these political entities into Ukraine itself could well impose intolerable political and economic strains on Ukraine. First of all, it's going to be extraordinarily difficult, let's be honest, to reconcile communities that have been divided and traumatized by the war, the cost of economic reconstruction of the occupied regions is going to be enormous. I mentioned that the so-called DNR and LNR, in my view, are essentially militarized dictatorships. These are political entities that are entangled. They're, they're deeply integrated already into Russia's military and security and economic and information spaces. Therefore, the political gap that separates these entities from the rest of the Ukraine is already wide. And that gap is almost certainly going to get wider as Ukraine continues to reform in line with, in particular, the association agreement that it signed with the European Union back in 2014. Now, in those circumstances, it seems to me that talk of early integration looks very unrealistic indeed. Let's remember as well that from Ukraine's perspective, integration on terms that are compatible with Ukraine's sovereignty would mean, in effect, the dissolution of these Russian proxy regimes. And I don't see any evidence to suggest that Russia is, is going to agree to that anytime soon. Now, that sounds very gloomy. I would prefer to call that realistic and sober. In the meantime, it seems to me that one really important thing that Western governments and the Ukrainian authorities should do, and here I think the President Zelensky is absolutely right, is to work towards bringing about a genuine and lasting ceasefire, using the Minsk agreements essentially as conflict management tools. Let's remember that the first two points of the Minsk agreements are a ceasefire and the pullback of heavy weaponry from the contact line. It's really important that the international community continues to support Ukraine to achieve that objective, to scale back and ideally to stop the fighting, to reduce and ideally completely end 
further deaths and casualties to begin, hopefully, to stabilise the situation along the contact line and prevent the re-escalation of serious fighting, which, unfortunately, does remain a real possibility going forward. Now, over time, I would argue that Ukraine that significantly reformed itself and became prosperous on a sustainable basis might well eventually act as a kind of magnet drawing people living in occupied Donbass to want to reintegrate voluntarily. But frankly speaking, that's not a plausible outcome for probably quite a long time yet. So until then, it seems to me the priority certainly for Western policymakers should be to help to defend the sovereignty of unoccupied Ukraine from further Russian pressure. I offer no apology for sounding quite downbeat about this, but that is a realistic that is my realistic assessment as an analyst. Let me also ask a question about the current events, which are not necessarily directly linked to your paper. I mean, the tribunal, the court proceedings about MH17, which are now proceeding in, in the Netherlands. And we see that how Russian propaganda very aggressively and emotionally reacts to it. But do you think that the results of this proceeding, of the ruling of the court, will have any impact on the implementation of Minsk agreements, on the probably revision of Minsk agreements or a change of Western policy? I think that these hearings are extremely important. You mentioned Russian disinformation. And as we know, Ukraine is certainly not the only target of Russian disinformation. One of the important ways of counteracting Russian disinformation, which often has the objective of confusing and disorienting target audiences, one of the most important ways of counteracting this is to expose it for what it is. It seems to me that events like the current tribunal in The Hague are extremely important or can play an extremely important role in, first of all, providing lots of incontrovertible information about what actually happened in this particular terrible episode. And secondly, exposing Russian disinformation for what it often is, which is frankly state-sponsored lying on a massive scale. Now, how can that affect the Minsk agreements? Well, at the very least, it can intensify international pressure. It can strengthen international public opinion against Russia by incontrovertibly demonstrating Russian responsibility, certainly Russian involvement in the shooting down of MH17. Whether in the short term that alone is going to change Russia's position with regard to the Minsk agreements, I rather doubt. If we're talking about attempts to change or even walk away from the Minsk agreements, I think we need to be very careful indeed. I would not support anything like that. First of all, any attempt to rewrite the Minsk agreements would simply be opposed by Russia. It would not countenance that. Um, Secondly, any attempt to walk away from the Minsk agreements would also be very dangerous. First of all, the Minsk agreements, for all their faults, they do bind Russia in to some sort of negotiating format. Walking away from the Minsk agreements would essentially free Russia from any remaining diplomatic constraints and might very well tempt the authorities in Moscow to re-escalate the fighting in eastern Ukraine, which would be a terrible outcome. Secondly, walking away from the Minsk agreements might well splinter international support for Ukraine. And let's, let's remember as well that many of the sanctions that have been imposed on Russia because of its actions in Ukraine, sanctions imposed by the United States and the European Union, are specifically tied to implementation of the Minsk agreements. So therefore, I think it's very important going forward that the Ukrainian authorities show that they have done everything possible 
on their part to implement the Minsk Agreement, thereby demonstrating very clearly to the world where the ultimate responsibility for failure to find a settlement lies, and that is with Russia. Let me ask the final question. Very often in Ukraine there is this kind of, I would call it a game, Putin always wins, meaning that any action of Russia is leads to Ukrainian defeat and Ukraine is defeated by Russian information warfare, Ukraine is defeated on the front line, etc. And I think in the West also there are many commentators like that. You say, on the contrary, that all the situation around Donbass is a huge Russia's defeat, that it wanted Ukraine to prevent from the signing association agreement. It failed. It wanted to make up a Novorossiya project covering half of Ukraine, it also failed. Can you explain why you think that? I think that the situation in, in occupied Donbass in June 2020 represents a strategic disaster for Russia, and I'll explain why. If we look back to the events of 2012-2013, which of course provide the background to the, the so-called Euromaidan crisis of, of the winter of 2013-2014, what did Putin's Russia want to achieve in respect of Ukraine then? Well, it wanted two things in particular. First of all, as you mentioned, it wanted Ukraine not to sign the association agreement with the European Union for a variety of reasons. As you said, Russia failed. Ukraine and the European Union signed the association agreement in 2014, and the association agreement entered into force in 2017. And the association agreement, as you know, is a very, very ambitious document. It will take a long time to implement. It will be very difficult. It will be very expensive. But it holds out the possibility that a very different model of governance eventually could become established in Ukraine, which I think from Russia's perspective potentially poses a threat to the authoritarian system of governance that has been consolidated under President Putin. The fact that Ukraine has signed and is implementing the association agreement in itself is a significant defeat for Russia. What was the other thing that Russia wanted in 2012-2013? Russia wanted Ukraine to join the Eurasian Economic Union. This was the, the central part of Putin's foreign policy platform when he returned as president in 2012. The central part Ukraine didn't join the Eurasian Union. I remember watching this question quite closely at the time. At the time, I thought it was highly unlikely that Ukraine would ever join the Eurasian Economic Union, even under President Yanukovych. Now, the idea of Ukraine joining the Eurasian Economic Union just seems almost unimaginable. So on those two grounds alone, what we see in Ukraine today is already a massive defeat for Russia. Moreover, as you mentioned, the so-called Novorossiya project, this campaign of violent subversion that Russia unleashed against Ukraine in early 2014, was predicated on the assumption that millions of Ukrainians living in South Ukraine and in Eastern Ukraine would rally to the Russian cause and would mobilize against the central authorities in Kiev and force the central authorities in Kiev to so-called federalize Ukraine's constitution. And what did we see in practice? Virtually nobody, very, very few people in eastern Ukraine supported this project. On the contrary, millions of Ukrainians have become mobilized and support of the Poroshenko government, now in, in support of the Zelensky government, to defend Ukraine's sovereignty. Ukrainians fought back en masse, particularly in 2014, against the Russian army, against Russian provocateurs and Russian mercenaries. The Novorossiya project, it seems to me, was a massive miscalculation on the part of the Kremlin. So if we add all this together, I would conclude that events in Ukraine over the last five, six, seven years have frankly been a strategic disaster for the Kremlin. 
Thank you so much for this conclusion and for this talk. I remind our listeners that we had a conversation with Duncan Allen, Associate Fellow at Russia and Eurasia Program at the Chatham House in London. And we talked about the Minsk agreements around the war in Donbass and Russia's aggression and about the paper The Minsk Conundrum, Western Policy and Russia's War in Eastern Ukraine, prepared by Duncan Allen for Chatham House. This was a Ukraine World podcast. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm assisted here with sound editor Oleksiy Soldatov and uh, social media manager Maria Sidenko. Ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. Stay with us. Thank you.